Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. All right, I'm Chris Avina with American Outdoor News. Today, we have uh, the co-author of The Barons, which is a book coming out shortly based on uh, a compilation of somewhat true life events, correct? Yeah, so uh, the book comes out May 3rd, and it is based in large part on a trip I took when I was 18 with three other women. A summer camp sent us out to the Phelan River in the far northern Canadian Arctic above the Hudson Bay. Um, and we paddled about, you know, 500 miles for wow. about 50 days. Yeah, and didn't see anyone else. Um, until like the last week when we ran into a group of fishermen. So it was just uh, us in an area so far north that in the summer the sun doesn't set and uh, trees do not grow. Um, yeah, it's a very incredible environment. Now that's, that's a hell of a trip for mm -hmm. three women to take. How experienced yeah. were you on uh, canoeing down these rivers? Well, so I had uh, been doing uh, trips with this camp, Camp Widgewagon in northern Minnesota. Um, it's a canoe-based camp primarily, but they also have backpacking. And I started at the age of, oh, I guess I was 12. I was, I was going into eighth wow. grade, if I remember correctly. And I started with a trip for a week in the Boundary Waters. And my family has property in northern Minnesota right on the edge of the Boundary Waters. So I, I grew up canoeing. I... I really loved canoeing, but um, those were my first experiences really doing tripping in a more um, concerted, serious way. And then uh, developmentally, the trips just kept getting longer um, uh, in more challenging terrain and more remote areas with more technical elements. Uh, the first time I did whitewater, I was uh, 16. Um, and when I was 17, we started doing some more you know, courses in it. Well, so when I was uh, 16, I went on a trip um, to the Bloodvein River in northern Canada, and that has some, you know, 
you know, grade three whitewater. So I, I did get to experience like a lot of whitewater. That's I think where I learned the most. And that was also with just three other women. And that was a trip of around 30 days. Um, and then when I went to the Arctic, I think that was the first time that I had really, well, certainly been in an area so, so remote, um, you know, that even a matter of getting an emergency evac can be difficult in terms of, of weather. Um, you know, at the camp, we had an emergency evac. We couldn't get a helicopter out to get the group for three days because of weather conditions. Um, so yeah, it was definitely uh, a different experience and really surprising to be in just such a different uh, space where it's like you, you look up at night and it's not even night. It looks like dusk. You can't see the stars. Yeah. Now, I mean, even, I mean, at 500 miles through the Arctic is very remote. Mm -hmm. What kind of survival skills do you need to prepare for this uh, because of all the perils that you can inadvertently stumble across? There's bears, there's wolves, there's yeah. uh, rough terrain, there's injuries, as, as we read in the book. Um, how do you prepare for that? I'd say realistically going into an area like that, the uh, biggest threats that you are going to face are going to be, um, let's say water first, mm -hmm. weather second, and then everything else comes third, um, including even like food resources at times. Um, but yeah, you really have to just prepare to, um, to treat the water with respect. Yep. Treat, um, particularly the rapids with respect, make sure that you are scouting and know what you're about to do. That's a big matter of safety. And also I think um, you, you travel really differently in sizes of groups. Like when it comes to weather, because we were a smaller group, we were able to push through um, different weather events. Mostly wind is a really um, <laughs> powerful enemy in an area with no trees. Uh, that's covered in the book. Um, especially when you get to the lake portions of the river, the wind uh, sweeping across the barrens um, creates, I was looking at about two meter high swells on a lake and I'm in wow. a canoe doing a four mile crossing. <laughs> and at one point I'm looking, I'm like, Ooh, I'm, I'm a mile off that shore. I'm a mile to the next Island. Uh, let's keep going. <laughs> you really got to be in good shape. Yeah, well, it demands you be in good shape. It just happens. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about the terrain because yeah, uh, you know, you, you're never gonna be stronger than Mother Nature. What type of terrain did you uh, encounter? Um, portaging was really uh, it was a challenge when you had to do it. You're on a river, so it's not that often. But when there's you know the canyon, uh, obviously, and there's um, like a bunch of bigger sets that you just can't go down. So when you have to portage, you have to sometimes do these like whole mile, like two mile, our longest was six mile crossing, like through um, what's essentially like scrub, scrub brush and moss. So you're getting it's, cut up. <laughs> no, not cut up. It's just soft. It's really challenging to have to hike across soft terrain. It's kind of marshy and wet. Yeah. Uh, and there's permafrost underneath it, so I, your feet are cold the whole time, even in the summer, just because, like, if it's wet, then it's, uh, 
you know, touching that permafrost underneath. So just because it was soft, it was really challenging to have to hike. <laughs> um, well, plus you're carrying the canoe and your gear. Your food, yeah, and the canoes, everything. the canoes, we had uh, PVC canoes. Um, so they were just like plastic to really hold up against a lot of uh, difficult things they had to do. But they're also kites in the wind and you're carrying yeah. them as a solo person and you have to be cautious about that you usually have a spotter on the bow and stern just to make sure that it you didn't catch and go swinging and the canoe could go like a half mile away before you even know it um you could even hit somebody or oh easily <laughs> easily the the wind in that canoe can be very very terrifying uh, and the the packs were around 120 pounds for a food pack down to 60 for a personal pack. Um, That's a considerable amount of weight to be lugging around. Yeah, and you never just get to do it once. There's four of you who news and all your gear. It's not just one hike, it's back and forth. But that's the most fun part of portaging is coming back with no equipment. You just get to <laughs> take, a, take a relaxing stroll and look around. All your food is gone and... Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you hope it's still on the other side, untouched when you get there. So what about, I mean, have you, it's very easy to lose um, your gear. Uh, yeah. Hitting rapids and, and you know, uh, anyone who's been rafting or canoeing knows that, I mean, you could flip and lose everything in a heartbeat. Yeah. Um, and that does happen. It, I, I know a few groups who it happened to. We were fortunate enough to not have any, uh, we didn't have any dumps where we had loaded boats. Um, we had one where we were running a set just to fall for fun. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I do know a group who had a dump and lost half their equipment. And uh, were, yeah, they were the ones who couldn't get an evac for about three days and they were stranded without a tent. Wow. after having just gone in, into the Arctic River, and it was a very scary situation. Um, and losing your gear is probably the worst thing that I could think of happening to me. You don't want to lose food in particular, but you really don't want to lose your tent. You don't want to lose your sleeping bag. Um, I, I lost my fishing pole, but that was um, because I was cleaning a fish, and I forgot to grab my tackle box and rod, and so that's somewhere in the Arctic. Someone, someone I, I hope, found it and has ended up with a nice fishing rod. Yeah, you know, losing your gear could be a matter of life and death when you're in uh, remote uh, areas like that. Yeah, particularly for uh, backpacking groups, because when you're canoeing, uh, there's a mentality that if you can portage it, you can carry it. Yep. So we front load a lot of our food and we don't have a drop. But if you're backpacking, I know the backpacking groups, you know, if they, if they didn't get one of their food drops because a float plane couldn't get in or even a logistical issue happened, then, you know, they were in, in serious trouble. And I know people who lost, you know, 20 pounds in a week because of mild starvation. Sure, sure. Now, uh, I know the terrain had changed over a 500-mile trek. And going through the canyons, I mean, you're literally surrounded by walls. As you yeah. 
<laughs> that there that was scary. Um, there's a, a lot of different terrain that happens along the Phelan. You have like the sandbars and sand eskers, which are probably the most fun. Um, you even have an area called the Oasis, uh, which I mentioned in the book, um, which is like pretty much the only standing grove of trees and forested area along the river. Um, the Hornby cabins and that as well. But the canyon itself, I think that there's, I mean, there, you don't, you don't want to go down the canyon because you can't get back out. That's um, the real terror of it is that if you get swept down, and I remember as we approached it, it was so inconspicuous. And it's just marked as a rapid set on the map, as with any other rapid set. So ones we would run, ones that, you know, we would even see the end of and be like, oh, this isn't a rapid set. This is a, this is a little run. Let's do it. Um, but we knew it was a set, so we wanted to pull off and check it out. And it was a giant, this wasn't even the canyon portion. This was just a waterfall that was like a 30-foot waterfall into a swirling hole at the bottom that I'm not sure anyone or any boat would ever come back out of. Wow. That, and it, <laughs> I remember scary. someone had said, like, oh, we could go further and see if we can run it. Lucky you didn't. <laughs> yeah, get out of your boats and scout, um, even if you think that the run-up does not look very <laughs> challenging. I remember it looked really still. It kind of had this still, swirling, eddy feeling about the whole top of it. And then when you get to the canyon, that's almost you see it coming and you you know to get out of the way because it's just walls and it's rushing rocks and walls and you can't you can't scout a line so it's just an impossibility and it's dangerous. But then the run out when you get on the run out, we maybe hopped in a little too soon because we ended up getting forced through a set that we couldn't scout. That I almost we took on a lot of water and had to pull off immediately, but we didn't dump. But I, there's walls on either side, and you see like about a meter standing wave coming at you, and it's like we have to do this to the best of our ability because we have no other option, and that's not where you want to be, particularly when it comes to whitewater. So, how often on on this particular trip have you hit the point of no return? On this particular trip, um, well, I as I said before as a smaller group you're maybe prone to take more risks based on the strength of your group having only two boats and a myriad of other reasons um so we had a couple of sets that we ran that we did purely because we felt confident in our communication the strength of our our paddling our whitewater skills mm -hmm. um that you know were admittedly dangerous lines that if we had you know, missed our line, we would have been at serious uh, risk of injury or death. Uh -huh. um, and then the crossing too, that was, I think, one of the more uh, terrifying things that we did. It felt like crossing an ocean, uh, really. But we had been stranded on an island on Aberdeen Lake for about three days at that point. Mm -hmm. And we weren't going to make our pick if we didn't move. Um, so it was, it was a choice we made and we were the only group who completed our route that session because of the wind. Um, yeah. Uh, that's, that's a life challenge. 
Yeah. And I look back and I'm like, I don't know. I'm glad I did it. But at the same time, yeah. When I say like there was a moment where I'm like, okay, I'm a mile from each shore and I'm just with these waves, I wouldn't make it if we went in. Um, so you just have to keep moving. I think there, that requires a lot of trust in the person next to you and a knowledge that you just have to keep paddling and moving forward. Um, which, you know, comes up in the book, I, I guess, having to paddle your, your dead partner out of um, such a remote and terrifying environment. I, I think a lot of what we try to embody is this idea of like, you just have to keep pushing forward. Um, I guess in camping, it's like, if you're on the middle of a trail, no one's going to come get you. Nope. There's not like, you can't cut out early. You can't fall back down. You, you just have to keep moving and find either the other side of the trail or the other side of that entire journey you decided to undertake. Yeah, well, we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to acknowledge some of our sponsors. When we come back, we're going to get into the, the, the story of the book itself, which is really gripping. So we're going to acknowledge our sponsors on the wood ammo. One of, you know, the only ammo I use, it's always a standard of excellence. Uh, pyro putty and phone scope, always innovative products. You should always keep uh, pyro putty in your backpack because it'll always get your fire started. You'll never have to worry about it. And uh, of course, Hunt of a Lifetime, we're gonna hear from them right now. We'll be right back. We love our children. We protect them. We guide them. We prepare them for life in the world. With all that we do, from deep in our hearts, we cannot control all things. Life-threatening illnesses and disabilities affect far too many of our children each year. While we cannot change the circumstance, we can make dreams come true. Dreams to provide hope, to provide spiritual healing and strength, to provide moments of happiness and relief in the hardest of times. We can give a glimmer of light and hope in a time of darkness and despair. Join huntofalifetime.org to help make dreams come true, to provide hope for children with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nonprofit organization fulfilling dreams for hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Visit huntofalifetime.org to learn how you can make a difference. Okay, and we're back. We're here with uh, Ellie Johnson, co-author of The Barons. And Ellie, you co-wrote this book with your father. Yes. Yeah. I know it's always challenging co-writing a book with somebody. How is it co-writing with your father? Well, um, so the story of how this kind of came to be was, I mean... He'd always been my camping buddy in a lot of ways. When I came off trail, I, I always regaled him with the stories and he was probably the only one who was genuinely interested mm -hmm. in um, the nitty and gritty of what I had to say. Uh, and when I went to college, I was in Burlington, Vermont, University of Vermont, and I was doing some uh, writing courses. I'm an English major. And my dad uh, says, oh, you should really write a short story about, you know, two girls who go paddling on the Thalon. Like, what if one of them gets, like, hurt or dies and the other one has to, like, get her out? And I was like, I'm, I'm busy. You can do that. Uh, and so he goes on to write a short story um, that was compelling and intimate. And I really liked it. And we decided to 
collaborate further him from you know more of a fiction standpoint i'll say at the end of the day he's the writer and i'm i'm the story uh you know but there was i, I guess just like hours and hours and hours of conversations beers pool talking about you know not not only the Phelan itself, what a unique environment it is and how to convey that in a story, but also, you know, my, my life story and a lot of my youth um, to produce what, you know, ultimately is not just a story about uh, camping, but a story about, you know, humans and, and how the stories in our lives create us. Well, there's certainly a lot of adventure there and um, uh, some of it has to be taken from your own knowledge, your own experience, your own uh, sense yeah. of life. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, grizzlies. I had a grizzly encounter when I was on the Ceylon, but not nearly as interesting. I tell people that uh, we were just paddling along the shore and we turned a corner and I was like, oh, that's a weird looking boulder. And then the boulder turned and looked at us um <laughs> so we had to cross the shoreline and it followed us for a tiny bit but then wandered back inland and i mean grizzlies are just massive and terrifying they look at you with bad intentions <laughs> uh, i the uh, locals when we flew in it was funny because um one of my friends had brought a ukulele on trail uh and was a musician or i guess i guess it was a pack guitar not a ukulele but um one of the people who flew us in asked if it was a gun and we were a summer camp. We weren't allowed to have guns. Sure. And we said, oh, no, no, it's a guitar. And they were like, oh, what do you have for the bears then? And we said, oh, we have bear spray. And they said, oh, you know what we call that? We call that seasoning. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's not good. <laughs> yeah, they're, um, they're terrifying animals. And, you know, I know of, um, uh, Actually, I interviewed uh, one person in particular that was uh, attacked by a grizzly. Uh, and uh. he was fortunate enough not only to survive the first attack, it was the second attack. He survived both attacks. And, you know, it, it's the revenant. Serious, serious. It, it, uh, it could have turned out ugly. Well, not that it wasn't ugly to begin with, could have been a hell of a lot worse. I'm I'm surprised he survived when when bears get focused like that that's when it's really scary either when they like claim those are the bear encounters I've heard of that have been really scary when bears will uh, claim environments oh yeah and kind of force other people out that happened to a group who was on trail they essentially got forced out of their campsite with only a first aid kit um and had wow. to just keep far enough away from a grizzly bear for the next like day before someone could come get them Wow. Uh, yeah, and that was un unpleasant. I, when we have to do bear training, um, and you know what they tell you in the bear attack, you, you are trying to keep your internal organs facing the ground and you don't want to let them roll you. So you're supposed to like put your hands behind your head, like lock them, like you're up against the wall and the cops have a gun to your head and you put your legs out to the side. So if a bear tries to flip you, it, it can't. Yep. Um, yeah, and you cover the back of your neck. I remember that's what they told us to do. And I've never forgotten it because it seemed like something that, like, 
you don't want to know, but I, I did feel like it would just be something that I'll always need to know, especially like traveling in the Rockies and even skiing. And, you know, it's just survival training. Yeah. And grizzlies are everywhere in <laughs> Northern U.S. and Canada. Well, you know, they, they had them on the endangered list for a while, and I, I don't think they're endangered anymore. You know, it's... Um... Well, it's, you know, it's specific species and specific, like, groups are endangered. You know, it's like, I know the ones that are fishing up in northern Canada along the ocean, they've been receding inland, but I don't think, like, grizzly bears as a species are being threatened, at least not, not right now. They yeah. seem to... They seem to be doing just fine. They're they're flourishing. So the two main characters from mm -hmm. from the beginning of the book that I've gotten up to was uh, Lee and Holly, mm -hmm. uh, two young uh, college women who took this uh, endeavor down five hundred miles of river, um, and one of them gets really badly hurt right from the get go. Uh, yeah. Now. Is that based on uh, real life or is that, uh, you know, a little bit Hollywood license? Uh, it's a little bit Hollywood licensing um, just because that that ends up like being the core of the story is just, you know, paddling someone out who's injured. I guess um, what ends up being the main difference here and anyone who's really gone to these remote areas could uh, consider like the worst case scenario is that you lose your means to call for help. Yeah. And that's why everyone says, have three, have two, have three, don't have one, don't just have a beacon, don't just have a sat phone. You have two things or three things and you keep them separate. We yep. had a beacon and a sat phone and kept them in two different boats. So it was really unlikely to swamp both boats. And if we swamp both boats, then we were already screwed. <laughs> You're really up the creek without a paddle. <laughs> yeah. So we start with the basic premise of like, oh my God, how scary would it be if you only had one thing and you lost it? Because uh -huh. um, your only option then is to just keep going and just keep paddling out. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, to me, it's a, it's a very strong story. The writing uh, is really amazing. And... Um, like I said, you know, just setting the tone of the story, it's um, not only are you trying to survive and get out, you're trying to, uh, the character is bringing uh, an injured friend strapped into a canoe or trying to, trying to get you out of there is, uh, uh, that's an undertaking in itself. And you know, if you watch uh, Burt Reynolds in Deliverance, you know, you see yeah. right there the, uh, the issues of uh, trying to get somebody out of a river. Well, so there was, there was a group at camp, and I'm, I'm really close friends with a few of the people who are on this trip. They were paddling um, the same river, a lower portion that, um, you know, Holly and Lee don't even get to in the book, but... Uh, they had a, a bad dump. Um, one of the boats went down and they ran out of the set. They lost half their equipment. And um, one of the girls was essentially found like almost a half mile down river, washed up and hypothermic. Wow. Um, and I, they, were, they had lost their tent and, you know, were stranded. 
uh, and it took them, I think the afternoon on the third day is when they finally got an evac and they had spent pretty much that entire time using the sleeping bags they had left that were dry and the clothes that they had to uh, keep that girl alive and warm. And she perked up after the first day, but it was still absolutely terrifying and traumatizing to everyone involved. Um, and yeah, I think that that in a lot of ways inspired that story too, just like talking to people about just like very, <laughs> the very true terror of just feeling so alone with the situation you have in front of you. You know, you, you don't, you don't call 911, you don't call an ambulance and you try to call that one person who can just come get you and tell them what's happening. Yeah. Um, you know, the first people we call is camp because they organize our resources, they have our insurance and they have rescue resources on standby. But at the end of the day, it's just you out there, you know, trying to rely on the medical knowledge you have from Wolfer to keep you know, an 18 year old girl alive. <laughs> Well, I, uh, I, I haven't made it through the whole book yet, but um, I'll tell you from what I have read so far, uh, I really can't wait to get through the rest of it. it well, please uh, enjoy yourself. I, I really, you know, it's not often that I make the time to sit down and write a book, you know, managing a, a, a magazine I'm reading constantly. So yeah. uh, in my downtime, the last thing I want to do is pick something else up to read. <laughs> but um I tell you, from right from the get-go, it really, uh, it really grabbed me. Uh, well, you know, at its core, it's an adventure story. It's it's meant to, I guess, <laughs> not be sat down and read over weeks and weeks and weeks, but something that you just let uh, grip you and, you know, <laughs> work through the adventure with Holly and Lee. Well, I think they they're great characters. They're strong characters. Uh, well, great, thank you. And. Uh, you know, it, it's uh, something that uh, all of, you know, our listeners should definitely step out. And uh, when it when it comes on to uh, the market. With, yeah, I highly recommend May 3rd. May 3rd. It's right around the corner. It's a few weeks away. Mm -hmm. um, yes, it is. Where are they going to be able to find it? Um, so we're publishing through Arcade Publishing. Uh, it's distributed by Simon and Schuster. You can literally just Google the Barons and it, uh, the Barons book, and it will pop up nice and quick for you for purchase on Amazon, uh, through Barnes and Noble online, um, any online retailer, and we are going to be at a magazine print in the Twin Cities as well. Do you have a, a website or social media that people could follow you on? Yeah, so I am on Instagram at uh, lej418, and my father is on uh, at Kurt Johnson Books on Instagram. Uh, no, no website as of right now, just the Arcade Publishing website or uh, the Baron's Book for Arcade. I think it's a great story. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really glad that uh, your publicist reached out to me. And uh, oh, thanks! I really appreciate it. So what else is in the works? Are you, do you have other books planned or other adventures that you're going to be basing future uh, future stories on? Well, yeah, right now I'm I'm trying to uh, work through some stories, still focusing on the camp aspect. Um, what I'm I'm looking at right now is moving towards the uh, East Coast side of the the camping history. But um, my father has a book that he's um, 
working to get published right now called Las Vegas Turnaround, which is based on his time working as a nightclub manager in Las Vegas. He did that for about uh, a little under 10 years, I think. And That's pretty exciting. Oh, it was the 80s. Boy, does he have some stories. <laughs> so oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a good book. I, I really hope it uh, sees market. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I definitely well, appreciate you coming on. Yeah, Thanks I really friend. appreciate you for having me. And, uh, well, like I said, uh, May 3rd, The Barons, check it out. You're not going to be disappointed. All right, thank you. Thanks again.